0: Loving Father, it's a time of excitement and of sadness, a time of opportunity and a time of uncertainty. And so we thank you especially today that as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, we stand on a rock. Your truth is ever fixed in heaven. Your word is truth. Jesus, God in the flesh, has died, is risen and ascended, has poured out the Holy Spirit on all flesh, reigns at your right hand in glory and will come again. We thank you for these certainties of our faith. May we believe them and love them and live them to the end of our days. Amen. Well, if you know me and my preaching, you know that uh, I like to make my cultural references bang up to date. And so, um, from from the 1950s a tune-filled musical by Rodgers and Hammerstein, South Pacific, in which nurse Nellie Forbush, who is falling in love with uh, Emile, is very keen to impress Emile, who is a cultured Frenchman. And so, in order to try to impress him with her intelligent conversation, asks the following question. Emile, she says... Do you ever think about politics? And if so, what do you think about politics? Well, I have a similar question for you this evening. Do you ever think about apologetics? And if so, what do you think about apologetics? (laughs) Now, you know, I hope, that uh, apologetics hasn't to do with apologising for your faith, although to look and listen to many Christians, you think they were apologising for their faith. But the word has to do with making a rational and evidence-based defence of your faith. Not as if God needs us to defend him, but we and other people need to be defended against our own ignorance and prejudice. So, for much of my time this evening with you, I'm going to be talking apologetics. It's a scriptural uh, idea. The nearest that scripture, I think, comes to defining apologetics, this defence of the Christian faith, comes from the Apostle Peter in his first letter. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. Do it with gentleness and respect. So we have scriptural warrant for apologetics for a reasoned and evidence-based defense of the Christian faith. Not because God needs it, but because we need it. And because skeptics will ask questions. There's everybody's favorite skeptic, not my favorite actually, my favorite skeptic uh, was the late Christopher Hitchens. Um, much more entertaining. Um, Hitchens at once had a debate um, with um, Professor John Lennox, the Oxford mathematician and uh, Christian apologist. And towards the end of the debate, um, uh, Lennox mentioned the resurrection. And uh, because it was getting towards the end of the time, the uh, chairman, uh, John Humphreys, said to um, Christopher Hitchens, would you like to respond? But I can only give you five minutes to which Hitchens replied, I won't need five minutes to respond to somebody who believes in the resurrection. So there are those around who will dismiss the Christian faith and its central fact, its central belief of the resurrection, just with a wave of the hand, thinking they can can do it in five minutes. Now, uh, uh, Professor Richard Dawkins is perhaps the best known of all the new atheists, the more aggressive ones, and uh, this is what he once had to say in an interview. I don't know where the story of Jesus rising from the dead comes from, the actual documentary evidence is very bad, and so, given its enormous inherent implausibility, I'd be much more inclined to suspect it. After all, he says, there are all kinds of legends knocking around the world uh, about Elvis Presley having risen from the dead, and you don't believe them, I presume. So you can see what he's doing, he's putting... Elvis Presley is still alive in the same category as Jesus is still alive. Now, I don't know if you know anything about the evidence uh, for Elvis still being alive. Here's one of the most noted uh, pieces of alleged evidence. There is a photo taken um, of the pool House door in Graceland, 1978. After Elvis's death and while the funeral cortege was passing through the grounds. And the photo is, allegedly, of Elvis sitting inside the room, looking at his own funeral cortege. Spooky or what? Would you like to see the photo? I thought you would. Ladies and gentlemen, we are different on different planets with regard to evidence and rationality when we compare Elvis lives with Jesus lives. And if that's the best that an intelligent atheist professor can come up with, he has some other things, but not much stronger than that, Then, and if Hitchens can dismiss the whole thing in under five minutes, we can begin to have confidence that if we know at least some of our material, some of our texts, our scriptural texts, and our facts, that actually we can give a firm defense of the Christian faith. So I want to encourage you this evening um, in your own faith to encourage you that you are as a Christian believing in the resurrection of Jesus on firm historical ground. I want to give you a few ideas by, uh, by means of which you might respond if somebody else, a skeptic, a doubter asks you to explain your faith in the resurrection to you. And also, if we are blessed to have uh, somebody in the congregation this evening who is unpersuaded themselves of the resurrection, I hope I can at least give you something to think about from Matthew's Gospel. So we come to our reading, Matthew 27, 57 to 66, where Jesus has not yet risen from the dead. He has died, but this is happening at the end of what we call Good Friday, the day before the Sabbath. And what I think that Matthew is doing in this passage, which talked about the burial of Jesus and the setting of a guard over the tomb, what I'm convinced that Matthew is doing is establishing those facts in order to clear the ground for what he'll then tell us happened two days later with the empty tomb. Hopefully that will come clearer to you as I go through. But I want to put to you from our passage this evening, three facts that Matthew asserts. But I also want to suggest to you that there is a mystery that only you, not me, but only you can answer. Three facts and a mystery. Three facts from Matthew and a mystery for you to unravel. The first of those three facts is this. According to our passage, after his execution, Jesus' body was placed in a new rock-cut tomb. And you're thinking, perhaps, well, I knew all that along. We, you know, that, that's obvious, and it's like Jesus being born in a manger or something. It's just kind of part of the story. These are significant facts, as I hope you'll see in a moment. There's our passage again. Um, a rich uh, man from Arimathea called Joseph, comes as evening approaches, um, who had become a disciple of Jesus, going to Pilate, um, the uh, Roman uh, delegate who had uh, presided over the uh, decision to crucify Jesus. uh, Joseph asked for Jesus' body, and Pilate ordered that it be given to him. Joseph took the body, wrapped in a cleanly cloth, placed it in his own new tomb, that he had cut out of the rock. He rolled a big stone in front of the entrance to the tomb and went away. And I think there may be details in there that Matthew makes quite clear that we hadn't quite noticed before. I certainly hadn't, until I looked at the passage in more detail, and I just want to unpack those for, for a moment. Let me just pause by posing the question, what would normally happen to a crucified body? Jesus had been crucified as a condemned criminal alongside uh, condemned criminals. And the Romans uh, had their own way of disposing with such bodies. They would either leave them up on the cross um, as a warning to others, and as the body hung on the cross and started to rot away, scavengers and carrion would come and pick the body away until it finally disintegrated. Or it'd be thrown onto the ground for the same thing to happen. the end, the bones themselves would just be carried away. Now, the Jews were not keen for even a criminal's body to be dealt with in that kind of way. The Jews were very passionate about burying even a criminal's body. And so the Jews, uh, taking um, a crucified man, would bury the body, probably along with others, in a shallow uh, trench. That's what would normally happen. And can you see what that would have done... For our assurance about the resurrection. If the bits of Jesus' body had just been carried away over several days. Or had been buried in a trench with others. How could we say we have real evidence for Jesus' resurrection? It would be more difficult. But it happened differently. But by the way, these are reasons why there are very few archaeological remains of crucified men. Uh, Because of that's what would normally happen uh, to the bodies. There are a few, but not uh, not many. Even though thousands of these dreadful executions uh, were carried out. But um, richer people, uh, more well-to-do people, would uh, make their own graves or tombs. Cut in the hillside or cut in the the sides of quarries. So there in the Jerusalem area, Anufrius Monastery, there are any number of rock-cut tombs. I've circled two of them for you to see. So these are rock-cut tombs of the kind that we're talking about. Um, And they would only be used for the well-to-do. So it's really quite unusual uh, for Jesus to be buried properly at all, and even more unusual for him to be buried in a rock-cut tomb, um, uh, such as one of those. Now, that is a tomb from further north than Jerusalem, near Jezreel, but that gives you some idea as to what the outside of the tomb likely looked like. And there's two things to notice here, really. There's a big stone, just as uh, mentioned in verse 60 of our passage. Uh, Mark calls it a very large stone, I think. But also, do you notice the low entrance? And there's another little detail in Luke's Gospel and John's Gospel. When they describe people coming to the tomb, they talk about them stooping. Now, you're not really going to make that up, are you? There's a little detail there um, because of the nature of these tombs with their low entrances. And so there's the, 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 the stone. And do you notice that in this case, and it may well have been the case in uh, in, the, um, in the tomb of Jesus too that the stone is quite high up so quite easy to roll down much harder to open because you have to roll it back up again no wonder the women in one of the other gospels wonder when they come to anoint the body on the Sunday morning, what we call the Sunday morning they ask who's going to move the, two, the, the stone for us Putting these ideas together, these thoughts together, Joseph of Arimathea had the motivation, he was a follower, a convert to Jesus, he had the resources, he was wealthy, and he, he not only had help from, John's Gospel tells us, from none other than Nicodemus, but he also had servants to help him, but he also had the status Matthew tells us that he, uh, excuse me, Mark tells us that he was a member of the Jewish Sanhedrin, a member of the Jewish council. So he would have had standing with Pilate. So there were good reasons for this man to want, to be able, and to have a fund from his own, uh, using his own tomb, the, the, the burial of Jesus in this way. So therefore, Jesus' body was not left to scavengers. And because it's a new tomb, it had not been used already. It had no existing occupants. Can you just imagine if there are previous occupants in in that tomb, and then somebody comes a few days later saying, when we put Jesus' body in there, how many bodies were there in there already? Oh, there were three, weren't there? Well, there's only two now. Oh, there must have been two to begin with then. We just miscounted them. We just missed them. So that's expanding fact number one. After his execution, Jesus' body was placed in a new rock-cut tomb. Fact number two from our passage. There was no doubt about which tomb the body had been placed in. Some theorists, some skeptics, say, well, they simply mistook the, the grave. Uh, the, the tomb. And they went from the real tomb that housed Jesus' body to another new one that didn't have any body in it. But the text says, the story says, in verse 61, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were sitting there opposite the tomb. So they were watching as Joseph and those who were helping him put Jesus' body in the tomb and then closed the, the stone over. They were there, they saw it, they watched But more significant than that, they had also watched Jesus die, verse 56. Now they're watching him being buried in the tomb. And the same two Marys will come back after the Sabbath, on the first day of the week. Chapter 28, verse 1, the same two Marys will come back again. They know which tomb to go to. So there's, I mean, anybody with a legal background would know you need continuity of witness. Is there a break in the story where something else could have happened? Now, there's continuity of witness. And another point that preachers often point out, which wouldn't have been concocted, wouldn't have been fabricated, wouldn't have been made up, is the fact that it's women who see this. Women didn't really count as witnesses in those days. You wouldn't have made that up. It's kind of got to be true. Fact number three. The tomb was sealed and guarded. The Jewish authorities go to Pilate and say, this man talked about rising from the dead on the third day. Um, Let's put put a guard over the tomb and seal it so that his disciples can't steal the body and say the resurrection has happened. So they cut that, uh, that option off. As if the disciples would have done anything like that at the time anyway. They had scarpered. It's only the women and Joseph who are around anyway. The disciples at that time have completely lost faith. They're nowhere to be seen. They're not concocting plans like that anyway. How ironic that the the unbelieving Jewish authorities take serious note of Jesus' prediction that he would rise again when the disciples took no note of it whatsoever. How ironic that is. So there we are. There's the story of the, uh, uh, the Jewish authorities going to Pilate, um, saying about Jesus deceptively predicting that he would rise from the dead, and uh, let's make the, the tomb secure. And so Pilate says, yep, um, you can have a guard. We're not quite sure whether it was a Jewish guard, a Roman guard, doesn't matter. Make the tomb as secure as you know how. It's irony, there, isn't it? I mean, a Roman figure like Pilate would be saying, you jolly well make sure that tomb isn't disturbed, otherwise you're goners. And the soldiers are, are goners. How little does he know <laughs> that God is going to be taking charge of the situation. So they made, went and made the tomb secure by putting a seal on the stone and posting a guard. So no one could have gone in to steal the body. It's the best I could find. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you, you'd laugh your way through those soldiers, but... Uh, um, uh, seal, rope, and wax on both sides, so you'd know if the two had been disturbed. I'll, get, I'll, I'll, I'll uh, <laughs> leave that one quickly. Three facts from Matthew, uh, from, from this passage, um, that uh, I want to, uh, wanted to emphasise this evening. All of this, I put to you, points to a coherent... That is to say that what we know, uh, burial practices and entombment in those days, and only in fact up to AD 70, when Jerusalem was destroyed, when it all changed, all we know about archaeology fits with the descriptions. It is factual in the sense that it's, again, it tells you what happens, it describes what happened. And it contains touches that really, seriously, can only have come from eyewitness testimony. And here's one more thing. Since we're in Matthew's Gospel, have you noticed, as we've gone through these later chapters of Matthew's Gospel, how constantly Matthew will be sort of saying, oh, this happened in fulfillment of the Scriptures. That happened in fulfillment of the Scriptures. He doesn't do that here. So strongly suggesting that what we have is a very early, very primitive story that Matthew has done nothing with apart from relate. It's just one more objection because it still could be said, look, this is just legend. This is historical fiction. And I want to say to you, No, it can't be. Historical fiction, uh, going back and researching how things were and then putting a story together, wasn't even invented until about 1700. People simply did not write stories in those days. The way that story is written is the way people wrote stories when they're describing something that happened. It is not fiction. It is not myth. It is not legend. Now the mystery that only you can solve. The mystery of indifference. That given these claims, these claims about these facts, the mystery is how we, her people, can be indifferent. How a skeptic can say, I don't need even five minutes to rubbish this evidence. And how a Christian How it can't make a real difference to the life and faith and witness of a Christian. That's the mystery for many of us. Not that we doubt it happened. Most of you know it happened. You believe it happened. But our response to it happening is the mystery. Charles Talleyrand was a French bishop and diplomat about the time of the French Revolution. He took the resurrection seriously... A contemporary of his founded a new religion which he thought, uh, the friend with the uh, acquaintance, was vastly superior to Christianity. And yet this man uh, wasn't able to find many takers for his new religion. So he went to Talleyrand and asked for advice. He says, why isn't my new religion catching on? And Talleyrand says, I've got the answer for you. I know exactly what you need to do to make your new religion work all you need to do is to have yourself crucified and then rise from the dead on the third day. It's as simple as that. This is key. The resurrection of Jesus is key. It's that important. Or, I quote to Charles Peace, a convicted murderer, who on the day of his own execution was visited by the chaplain who spoke to him about spiritual things and about the state of his soul and this kind of thing. Uh, To which Charles Peace, in his predicament, uh, took very seriously the claims of Christians and the claims of the Christian faith by saying this. Sir, if I believed what you say you believe, even if England were covered with broken glass from coast to coast, I would walk over it, if need be, on hands and knees and think it worthwhile living just to save one cell. I mean, we, we sometimes need people like that to tell us just how important our faith really is and should be to us, don't we? Or, in a slightly more up-to-date and sane way, Michael Green, well-known Bible teacher, puts it like this. The resurrection is the place to begin if you're looking for a satisfying faith on which to base your life. Examine the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus instead of... um, Going, uh, going through all the different world religions um, uh, that, y- that you might find. Because if Jesus is risen, you need to look no further. Of course, if he isn't reason, uh, risen, then, as Paul says in First Corinthians chapter 15, our faith is futile. Let's all go home. But, Paul goes on to say, but Christ has indeed been risen from the dead. And amongst other things, that gives us a guarantee of our own eternal future. Now, Matthew hasn't even described the resurrection yet. Well, in fact, he doesn't. He only describes the discovery of the empty tomb. But he's setting the scene here, as I hope you can see, for saying you can't get out of it. You can't say Jesus didn't really die. He just fainted on the cross. You can't say they went to the wrong tomb. You can't say they stole his body and made up the story of the resurrection. He shuts off all the different alternatives and we're left with this one challenge from a sober historical text. Do you believe it happened or not? And if not, why not? Because the evidence is here. And let's pray to God to fill us with his Holy Spirit so that we don't have that indifference of shrugging our shoulders, saying, yeah, Jesus rose from the dead, that's fine. Absolutely fine, I believe that. I can tick that box and not do anything about it. Let's, 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 let us pray. Lord Jesus, I, we can call you Lord Jesus in the present tense, because we believe you are alive and hear us by your spirit. Most of us do believe that you are alive, that you live and that you ever live. And so we ask that you would uh, fill us with your spirit, that we may go out with more confidence and joy and assurance and be able to answer with uh, tact and politeness and with patience those who think that um, uh, all of this is just made up. And for those here who do doubt... Just pray that uh, they might look again at this account of a crucified man, an an occupied tomb and an empty tomb and a living, growing church and begin to realize afresh what all that means for our souls, for our forgiven sins and for our uh, fulfilled and purposeful life here and now and for an eternal destiny with you. Amen.